Today we continue our short series within the series of study in the first Corinthians. And today we're looking at the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34. And I have titled the message for today, Resurrection Incentive. And that is that resurrection becomes the motivation for us in our Christian life. And uh, I would like to start with a premise statement that the resurrection hope is our motivation for all aspects of our Christian life. So let us begin this reading from verse 29. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. Let me restate that premise statement that our resurrection hope is our motivation for all aspects of our Christian life. Because we believe in the resurrection, I believe that we have the incentive to accept Christ. We begin our new life in Christ. Because we have the resurrection hope, we can have a sense of purpose in this life, in terms of life commission and so forth. And because we have the resurrection hope, I believe that our life can really change. We should live this life that is going to be held accountable on that day of resurrection. So we begin with the new life in Christ. And I'm talking about that whole conversion experience in which we receive salvation. We have the assurance of salvation. In verse 29, Paul says, Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Here Paul is touching upon the theme of baptism. But the context of this notion of baptism has to do with something that is unknown to us. We don't know exactly what the context is because he's talking about baptizing for the dead. What does that mean? But before we talk about baptizing for the dead, let's talk about what baptism means. And what does the baptism signify? It signifies our initiation into the kingdom. It has to do with our salvation. It has to do with our conversion. That's how we begin our Christian life. And as most of you know, that there are many different modes of baptism. And many of us, we're accustomed to the sprinkling. This is usually in the mainline denominations, usually in the high churches. They 
want to make it simple, so they simply sprinkle some water over our heads. And this signifies, of course, the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ, that because of what Jesus, Jesus did on the cross for us, our sins are forgiven, and we are cleansed. Another mode that I have seen in some churches is they're not content with just sprinkling, so they actually take a scoop, a handful of water, and they kind of pour on the head of the, those who are being baptized. And this could signify the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because at the very beginning phase of our Christian life, if we do not have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, whereby the Holy Spirit comes upon us and He enters into us and He now indwells us, we cannot possibly live a Christian life. But the mode that we have heard of, and if we have any kind of Baptist background that we would be very, very familiar with, and that is the mode of immersion. And we call it dunking. Dunk right into the water, and then after complete immersion, you come out of the water. And this would, of course, signify the whole process of death and resurrection in the Lord. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, Paul had this to say, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now, this whole process of immersion baptism, which I believe is biblical, this has to do with this notion or picture language of, for example, a ship that has sank to the bottom of the ocean. And it has become so waterlogged, so jammed with water, the pressure of the water, there's no way that ship could possibly be pulled out of the sea. It's kind of like that. What Paul is saying here is that if we are baptized with Jesus, we have really died. We have been so influenced by the cross that it's become part of our psyche. We have completely died to our ego and our self-life. And that only by the power of God we are lifted up into new life. So that if we have truly died with Christ, that is baptized in His death, then we will truly be resurrected along with Him. So Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, which is, I would say, one of my favorite slogan passage, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is the concept of baptism. Baptism that identifies with the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, you don't just stay in the water. The whole thing about baptism is you don't just get sunk in the water. You come out of the water. And if you have ever experienced immersion baptism, and I personally have experienced this, even though I was a, I grew up in a, a Presbyterian church and uh, I received infant baptism and, uh, and the later I received confirmation 
But in my own spirit, I felt like I would like to experience what that immersion feels like. So I actually tried it out. And uh, I got into the water and immersed myself and then came out of it to see what that experience is like. And it is a total sense of joy when you stay under the water as though you're drowning. And then finally you come for the breath of air. And that has to do with the resurrection life that we experience with Christ. But now, Paul is talking about a very specific type of baptism. He's talking about those who have been baptized for the dead. In Greek, it's baptizo menoi, whipper, ton, necron. Now, what does this mean? What does the preposition whipper mean? Well, the scholars say that the preposition can be understood in two ways. If we're talking about whipper in relation to some kind of place, then it would be interpreted as above or over in opposition to whippo, which would be under. That's one way of interpreting this. If whipper is related to people or things, then it should be translated as either for, on behalf of, or instead of. So the scholars, if they would say this has to do with something of a place, they're talking about some kind of place, then these people would be those who are baptized over or above some place. And what would that place be? The dead, the gravesite, they would say. Perhaps the gravesite of the dead martyrs. And they might sense this kind of a spiritual atmosphere or sacred atmosphere. And we're all familiar with the Roman catacomb, the underground barrier sites, where during the time of persecution, Christians gathered together secretly and perhaps even were baptized in that kind of context. But this wasn't that period of time. This was too early during Paul's time. So the persecution hasn't really happened yet to that degree. Christians were being persecuted locally, but not entire empire as such. And some scholars would interpret this text as a reference to those who are baptized on behalf of those who have literally died in Christ before they were baptized. And perhaps the situation happened, they were all being prepared to receive the baptism, then somehow they had died maybe died of plague or died of some tragedy, and they didn't have a chance to be baptized. So the Christians instead would be baptized for them in a symbolic way. But then this interpretation would require some kind of esoteric or superstitious practice that was going on. It's kind of like indulgence during the medieval period in which we, the living, we were pay or do works of good deeds to get our loved ones out of the purgatory earlier so that they can ascend to heaven. So we don't know whether Paul is simply acknowledging this, but he's definitely not endorsing this. He may be saying, okay, this is what you guys practice. Well, if you practice, then you must really believe in the resurrection or this would be a nonsense. Personally, I would rather interpret this 
to refer to those who are being baptized, not on behalf of those who have died, but in the place of those who have died in Christ, as though they are new recruitment in the kingdom. And some scholars have advocated this, and I personally, at this point, would hold on to this version. And that is, for example, let's consider the Christian recruitment as kind of like military recruitment. A soldier dies in the war front, and from the headquarters perspective, we need to replace that soldier who has died in the war front. So they recruit whoever is a fresh new convert and places them in the war front. Or if we take an athletic analogy, an athlete is injured at the last moment. And so that athlete cannot participate. So another athlete must come into that place and replace that athlete in the competition. Or our team will not be complete. Whatever the picture may be, I believe the Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about all these biblical heroes and all the Christian heroes in the early church days, and even the martyrs, the Hebrews writers would list all of these characters. And then in chapter 12, he talks about this cloud of witnesses, these people who have already passed away, but they're looking down on us as we run this race, which is set for us with Christ at the other end, encouraging us and having set the example of having faced the cross and now exalted in the heavenlies. Whatever the picture may be, the baptism signifies our initiation into the kingdom. It signifies our incorporation into the body of Christ. It signifies our new life of conversion and experience of salvation. And it has to do with our new recruitment for kingdom services. And so Paul is saying, if that is true, then how important is that? Would we be, be willing to go through all of these serious, serious contemplations, serious, serious ceremonial preparation if there was no resurrection? It is because we believe in the resurrection, we believe in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He rose from the dead, and that we can also participate in that resurrection power, that all of these baptismal ceremony, even signifying the fact that we are new recruits into the kingdom services, would make sense. So if there's no hope of heaven, no hope of spiritual resurrection and the bodily resurrection, then there's no hope of joining our Lord Jesus, no hope of being united with our spiritual predecessors, no hope of trusting the text like Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. And of course, there will be no hope of seeing our loved ones who have already passed away in the Lord. But then Paul continues on by saying it is not just our fresh new life that we have begun in Christ signified by the baptism. But he's talking about our life purpose. He's talking about our sense of commission. 
In verses 32, verse 32a, Paul says, And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Paul says we endanger ourselves every hour. I face death every day. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. And of course, we look at Acts chapter 19 where Paul was in Ephesus and there was this riot that almost uh, got him killed and his, his companions got them killed but they were saved from that situation. There's no mention of him fighting wild beasts in the arena like the gladiators fighting the lions in Ephesus. But who knows? Maybe Paul is talking about an actual situation that wasn't recorded in the book of Acts, but it could simply be a figurative way of saying these, these rioters, these mobs, they were like wild beasts and, and I had to fight them off. Whatever Paul may be talking about, he's talking about his sufferings for the sake of the gospel. And he himself has this long list of catalog of suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's look at chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, beginning with verse 23b. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Why would Paul go through all of this? Why would he do that if he did not believe in the resurrection? That his life would end simply with this. What would drive him? What would drive any of us to suffer for Christ? Why endure through this? And as we know, in this world, there are so many people without hope in Christ. They cannot see any other way out. And so they simply commit suicide. Suicide would be quite relevant. I would say that's the smart way to go if there's no resurrection. There's no final judgment. There's no heaven. There's no Christ. But suicide would be the most stupid thing you would do if there was Christ and there would be accountability for our life. And that would be a murder that you're committing as the last act of your life. So what is the motivation for Paul in all that he was doing? his sense of apostolic commission, his mission, his service in the kingdom, all this suffering, both physical, mental, emotional. What would be the motivation for us in going through what we are going through? 
all the sufferings that we go through. Many of us financially, positioning, even status and, and reputation-wise, we're willing to let go of all that for Christ's kingdom and Christ's sake. I sometimes have this temptation or temptational thoughts entering into my mind. If I were not a solid Christian, if I were not a servant of God, I could get away with so many things. I can cheat. I can cut the corner. I can do nasty things. I can commit all kinds of crime. And how I am tempted to do that. But I can't. Because I'm a Christian. And I'm a servant of God. Because I believe in Christ, there are a lot of handicaps and disadvantageous things coming my way. And so it seems like what Paul is saying is we're going through all of this, but this seeming death of a dog, I would say, you know, in Korean, kejugum. Why do we go through all this? Why? Why this ridiculous type of torture? Are we masochists? Of course not. It is because we have this firm conviction in the resurrection, in the redemption, in the vindication and recompensation that comes from Christ. That Christ will reward us. Christ will praise us. Christ will compensate us. It only makes sense if the resurrection is true and what Jesus Christ claimed and what Jesus Christ experienced was true. And then finally, Paul also mentions that the resurrection has such a relevance for our lifestyle in the present. Our struggle to be truly holy, struggle to be sanctified, struggle to be Christ-like, to follow His path. Beginning with verse 32b, Paul says, If the dead are not raised, then the only option we have is, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled, Paul says, and then he quotes this statement, Bad company corrupts good character. And then he says, Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. In Christian community, there are definitely some aberrations. There are some erroneous ways of thinking. And I would like to mention two which are polar difference, but both of them are wrong. One is what we call legalism. It's called nomianism. We get so legalistic-minded. Even after we are saved by the grace of God, everything is like legalism. Do this and do th don't do that, and, and you've got to keep all these regulations. It's like nothing has changed. We're saved by the grace, but our life is all about legalism. I am not against the law. I am not against the regulations. I'm not against the ethical codes. 
but I'm against the way of thinking that says we live by the code instead of by the spirit and the freedom in the grace of God. If I impose that kind of regulation upon my children, they would suffocate and they would die. They would not feel like I am their dad. Rather, I'll be like a taskmaster, a slave driver, or military drill sergeant. But that's not what it's about. Kingdom of God is by grace. It is by the Spirit. Yes, we abide by the laws. But we don't abide by the laws because it is like a stringent code of morality for us. So let us not be deceived into thinking that Christian life is like, okay, we got saved now. Now we got to pay up. We got to do all these routine things to perform and show our very best to the Lord. That will not do. But on the other hand, there's another extreme erroneous way of thinking. And this is what we call libertinism. This is completely opposite. It's antinomianism. No laws. We're not bound by laws anymore, so we are free to do whatever. So such a libertinistic way of thinking is so free-spirited and earthly indulgent and, and doing whatever that makes you feel good, whatever gives you pleasure and enjoyment, happiness, that seems to be a code of ideal for them. Now some people think that Libertinism finds its cause in the philosophy of Epicureanism. I don't know if you're familiar with Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, who talked about happiness as our ultimate goal in life. But he was basically talking about the way to true happiness is by reducing pain, and the way to reduce pain and struggle is by leading a simple life. He never advocated indulgent life. This is kind of like the Greek version of Buddhism where it says if you want to get rid of pain which prevents you from experiencing true and ultimate freedom, then you must learn detachment. But I think what we see here in the Corinthian church is more influenced by Dionysius of Bacchus, this worship of Dionysius in the temple that was actually there in the city of Corinth. And here, what kind of spirits are we talking about? We're talking about spirit of debauchery and reverie and licentious lifestyle. Eat and drink and be merry. 24 hours a day. And this may even be similar to our contemporary philosophy of hedonism. And hedonism, the root word is hedone, which means pleasure. Everything's about pleasure. There's no restraint. There's no self-denial. There's no thinking of others. It's whatever I can get in terms of pleasure. Very materialistic mindedness. And why do they have this kind of mindedness? Well, because they are not thinking about the future. There's no future accountability. There's no ultimate truth. So we only have this present moment. So let's live it up. Interesting is Isaiah, in chapter 22, verse 13, he actually 
had this in mind, this kind of way of thinking. And it is out of his word that Apostle Paul quotes. And he says, let us eat and drink and for tomorrow we die. Even Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2.24 said, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. If there's no other future, if there's no other accountability, this is all we have. Our satisfaction in the present, eating and drinking and fulfilling ourselves here in the present moment. Even Jesus talked about this rich fool who stores up for himself not the riches unto God, but for himself in the present moment, he says, Oh, I'm going to take life easy. I'm going to eat and drink and be merry. That you find in Luke chapter 12. I mean, I think I can understand how people would think like this. If they don't have God, if they don't know Jesus, if they don't believe in the resurrection, in the future, if they feel that this is everything, yeah, that's the way to go. Or end your life. So Paul says, do not be misled. That is, do not be deceived. Basically what he's saying is, wrong way of thinking will lead to wrong way of behaving. And then he quotes, from this Athenian poet, Menander, bad company corrupts good character. Bad company, who you associate with. People who are bad examples to you, bad influences to you. They're giving you bad ideology, bad worldview, bad sets of values. Your good character will be spoiled by your connection to these people. Today, we have so many philosophical ways of thinking that has pretty much set our minds on an automatic mode. And let me tell you what, what I'm thinking about. And you might even say this began with a secularistic way of thinking, that is removing ourselves from the biblical prescriptions or biblical worldview and things becoming secular to a point that we don't believe in God anymore. We call this atheism. God doesn't exist. And if we don't believe that God exists, then we could only believe that everything that we have is what we see and what we feel, what we experience. It leads to materialism. And without God trying to explain how all these things have come forth, we engage in evolutionism. And basically, we're talking about no God no accountability to God and His truth. We're talking about humanism and then ultimately egoism, which leads to only one of two options, quick death or hedonism. So if there is no resurrection and there is no truth of Christ, then there is no accountability to God, no judgment at the end, This week I had a, a chance to participate in a forum which focused on 
this latest technology or technological thoughts, a metaverse. I've had this notion about virtual reality and augmented reality for, for a number of years now. And I just wanted to review to see how others are thinking at this point. And in this forum that um, I attended, it was an online forum, I realized that all these technological advances can lead us into a false sense of security and satisfaction. Basically, an illusionary, delusionary way of thinking. Because what is happening right now is that people cannot be satisfied with what is real, what is happening in the real world. So they are creating literally another world. Okay? And that world may be something beyond this world, and that's what we mean by metaverse. A universe that is beyond this universe. But we want to create that through technology. But it's not real. And that's why they call it virtual. It's almost real. And sometimes people cannot even differentiate which is real. Because it's becoming so technologically advanced. It is very difficult to discern. But once people enter into this kind of virtual reality, even augmented reality, they become so accustomed thinking that this is real. And if this becomes real, then their life will be completely engrossed, entrapped in this reality. They would not think about the accountability in the true reality of things. And I realized only way you can really come out of this kind of state of delusion or illusion is, as Apostle Paul says, Come back to your senses as you ought. you got to wake up. By whatever means, we have to wake up in our senses. And that was the scary thing. There was a, a person who obviously was the expert in this area, and she even got a degree in MIT, and uh, she's working with uh, Katie. Yes, she's working with Katie, and... Definitely, she's an expert in this area, but you could tell that she really believes in this, that this is the future. And uh, I am not trying to undermine everything that they're saying. I definitely want to learn that language because I think there's a lot of potential in what technology can offer for us. At the end of that, I came to this conclusion. You know what? How are we going to help this upcoming generation to realize that this is not real? What if they're not able to differentiate, thinking that what they're involved in right now, in metaverse, is more real than what is real? That's going to be a, a crisis for all of us. We have to now define what is real for them. Because even this person who was lecturing, she kept mentioning, this is reality now. We have to get, get used to this. Yes, it is reality, but ultimately it is not the reality. Because that is the reality without the flesh, without the body. That is the reality without the soul. That is the reality of consciousness. Consciousness. 
And so I have concern in both ways. First, to learn the language because we have to keep up with the age. But at the same time, what is this leading to? If we just close our eyes and simply follow what this generation is talking about, then I tell you, we are all going to be deceived at the end. But if we keep our eyes open, and perhaps we can guide this generation how to utilize technology in one sense without being so engrossed in technology that we have become deceived into thinking that this is real. Let me read for you in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. We read just a portion of that earlier, but I want to read you the entire passage with the excerpt of the previous ones. Uh, I, I will not read that. Let's begin with verse 1 in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Then we leap onto verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace." So our new life in Christ begins with our death and resurrection. And this is in continuity with the apostolic tradition. And this is signified by baptism. We are baptized into His death and His to resurrection. And in this sense, we are talking about union with Christ. You know, oftentimes people think being united with Christ is just a, some kind of luxury talk. Like, ooh, I feel so intimate with Christ. And all. But what we need to understand from this context is to be united with Christ is to be united in His death and resurrection. So Paul says to be baptized in place of the dead. That means it is time for us to be recruited and placed in the front line of the batter. The, all, the martyrs and all these great heroes of faith who have gone before, now they're gone. Now we need to replace them. And we need to fight the war of faith just like the way they did. Not in the background, but up in the front. There's time for us to stand in the front line, to be right there in the competition, instead of as spectators watching from the audience, you're here in the field ready to run. And such a life of intimate union with Christ and solidarity with other Christian heroes and martyrs would lead to two implications. One, that we must be willing to suffer with others for Christ and with Christ in the line of duty, in the service of the kingdom, in fulfilling our commission. That's why when Christ spoke to Ananias 
gave him a word for Paul when he was converting Paul. Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That was part of his commission. To receive a commission from the Lord is not an easy matter. It is not a, some privileged matter. It is a matter that requires all our devotion, all our life. It has to be suffering. Let us never forget that. Second implication is that our life must be a declaration of death to our sin and our sin nature. That is, we are giving our new allegiance to Christ to follow Him the way He operated. To be Christ-like, to be sanctified. And so I believe that Paul is talking about all of life here, all of Christian life. The very beginning, our call of service into the kingdom, our lifestyle itself, all of them have to be aligned to Christ. And this requires that we really wake up and become aware of what our life is because it is so easy for even Christians to become passive. It is so easy for us to simply say, we are saved, we have the calling, this is the pandemic season, so, you know, God's given us the rest, and we fold our arms and wait around for what comes next. But Paul obviously is saying that everything in our life on a daily basis must make count for the kingdom of God. So let me now go back to our passage. And if we go back to that passage and let's read this very slowly and deliberately. Let's see what Paul is saying to us once again. Beginning with verse 29, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized in the place of the dead? That is, now you are recruited to replace those who have died and gone ahead of you. If the dead are not raised at all, why are we baptized in place of them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts, in Ephesus, with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, there's only one option. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's nothing special about my life. Nothing special about this world. Nothing special about this era that we live in. Let's just make the most of this life until we die. But Paul says, do not be misled. That is, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. What are you associating with? What thoughts are you associating with? What ideologies are you associating with? What kind of mindset do you have? Because that's going to affect you 
your character and your behavior in the long run. And then finally he says, come back to your senses as you ought. Wake up. Just like the prodigal who woke up from his state of such despair and demise, feeding off of the pig's food. And then he came to his senses one day, this is not me, this is not what it's about. I have a father who loves me. I can go back to him. And so his conversion begins there. Paul says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are those who are ignorant of God. It comes from ignorance. No matter how smart we think we are, no, no matter how gifted we are, no matter how spiritually sensitive we are, it all amounts to ignorance of God if we do not come back to senses and do not stop sinning. He says, I say this to your shame. And it, it does affect us. It puts us to shame when we are confronted with truth of the Word of God. And if our present life is not up to par as Christ would want us to be. Amen. Let's pray.